good morning to everybody. I did have a PowerPoint for this morning, but I feel I've tempted the Lord enough today. We've already had to restart everything and, and everything, so I just the PowerPoint is a bridge too far. Who knows what might happen? So you just have to look at me. No PowerPoint today. I don't know what to say. I don't know how Peter and Paul did it, but somehow they soldiered through, and will I. Advent. We have the first Advent. It's already come. We're waiting for the second Advent, so we're in this already but not yet in-between phase. Last week, we saw David teach us from Psalm 25 what a faithful life is supposed to be like while we wait for the second advent. And now, I want us to, uh, I, I want Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 12, help us to reorient our perspective uh, and toward hope for what Jesus is going to do when he comes back. What did Jesus come to do? And what I, wanna, what I want to say this morning is Jesus came to do more than just save you. If you're a Christian today and you've been saved by repentance and faith in Jesus, that is wonderful. But is that everything he came to do? Did he just come to save a million people, two million people, and, 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 and leave? What is it that Jesus is going to do when he comes back? Saying that Jesus' mission is about salvation is true, but it's only partially true. Like saying that how the Grinch stole Christmas is just about an angry green guy stealing toys from Whoville. Well, that's true, but it, there, there's more. I mean, he did, he did change his heart instead of being two sizes too small. It went larger, and then he went back down the hill to Whoville and gave the presents back, and he realized that maybe Christmas doesn't come from a store, and that maybe Christmas perhaps means a little bit more. So if all you saw was that it was about the angry green weird guy stealing toys, that's right, but it's also not complete. The Bible's about more than just Jesus coming to save you. The Bible's about God. He's choosing and rescuing people to be part of a community in the future. There's going to be a community of God's people, and that community is going to look like something. Jesus has come to do more than just save people. He's come to make them a community, a community that will perfectly reflect God's values in Revelation 22 and beyond, but that will try to model God's values and push those values outward to reach people with the message here while we wait. So what I want us to think about, Isaiah 11 verses 1 to 12 is very familiar. I read parts of it last week. You can skim through it right now as you listen to me and say, I know what this passage is about. And you're right, you, you probably do know what the passage is about. But what does God want his community to do after they're saved, right? Did he just come to save us and then we're just like in this holding pattern, just waiting, just waiting? What are we supposed to be doing as a Christian community, big or small, while we wait? So Jesus wants us to do more than just get saved. And Isaiah can help us with this. This is a really familiar passage. You all know it. You can probably explain what it means, and you would be right. But what is the context that comes with this beautiful Christmas passage about Jesus as the king with righteousness, holiness, justice? What's the context that makes it so special? We can't just parachute in and rip Isaiah 11 out and say, see, uh, he's going to be full of righteousness and holiness and justice. And what has come beforehand in Isaiah 1 through 10 that makes this passage from Isaiah 11 
so beautiful and so special. What does this teach us about Advent? As if you belong to Jesus, the first Advent brought you salvation, but yet you're still waiting for the second Advent to fix things. Isaiah will help us, and it will probably shock us sometimes, too, as we listen to what he says. What is Isaiah's context that produces all the beautiful promises in our passage? So our sermon today has two parts. We are going to briefly skim through some passages from Isaiah 1 to 10 so that we can understand the beautiful promise in Isaiah chapter 11. So part one will be a trek at warp speed, light speed, through Isaiah 1 through 10. And then part two will be our passage itself. And that does not mean the sermon will be twice as long. You have my word. My word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in your son's name. Lord, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And through the writings of the prophets and in the preaching of John the Baptist, you've told us to prepare our hearts to meet you. So this morning, as those of us who belong to you because of the first advent, as we wait for the second Ready our hearts and minds to hear your word and respond as faithful servants so we'd be equipped to do everything that's good and pleasing to you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So what is God's issue with the Israelites in Isaiah? You might be tempted to say, well, they don't really believe in God. They're externalists. Yeah, but there's more. There's specific things that they're doing that he's upset with, that Jesus, when he comes back, is going to fix. So let's see what they are. We'll take a brief trek. Isaiah chapter 1, long passage where God is very upset, very disappointed. But Isaiah 1, verses 15 to 17. This is a good excerpt that gets the point across of the whole chapter. When you extend your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. So this is already not a good start. Even when you pray for a long time, I won't listen. Your hands are stained with blood. Wash, be clean. Put your, remove your ugly deeds from my sight. Put an end to such evil. Learn to do good. So clearly, God is upset, right? They're in trouble. What are they doing wrong? What's the problem? Verse 17. Seek justice. That's what he wants them to do. Well, what does that mean? In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, what does that mean? Help the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. That's why he's angry with them, for stuff like that. It's not just, you need to get saved. It's not just, you need to love me. It's, you need fruit. What fruit? Help the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. What's he saying? He's saying it's not enough that you, well, first of all, they don't, they don't seem to really love him anyway. I mean, they're going through the motions with their, their rituals that they're supposed to do, but there's no heart. But the point is, there, there's no fruit either. He's saying that he's mad at them because they're not making their community a mirror for what the kingdom's going to look like when it comes. They're supposed to model their internal life as a community so that God could say, that is what I'm talking about when the kingdom does come. It's going to look something like this, like Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 4, when all the disciples were together, they shared their resources with those that were less fortunate. This time of brotherly love that actually meant something. And God here is saying, there ain't no brotherly love. There's nothing. Seek justice and I won't be mad at you anymore. Down a few more verses. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21. 
This faithful town, talking about Jerusalem, this faithful town has become a prostitute. She was full of justice. Righteousness lived in her, but what's wrong? But now, murderers. Now, I don't think murderers here is literal. There's nothing in Isaiah 1 to 10 that says people actually kill one another. There is stuff over and over and over again about how injustice is done and people are oppressed. And it talks about blood being on people's hands because of this injustice and oppression and, and crushing of the most vulnerable people in society. So I think the murder is metaphorical. I think he's saying that if you, cre if you create injustice, if you oppress people, if you shape or make public policies that hurt people, then you're a murderer. Because you are killing people, you're just doing it very, very slowly. His whole march through the first 10 chapters is about justice, there's injustice. You're hurting people, you're cruel to people, you're taking advantage of people, you're passing laws and, and ruling in such a way to deliberately crush people, and you are, in effect, murdering people. One, uh, chapter 1, verse 23. Your princes are rebels, companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and pursues gifts. They don't defend the orphan, and the widow's cause never reaches them. Leadership is corrupt. There's no advocates for the most vulnerable people in society. There's no for orphan children who have no one to care for them. There's no safety net that means anything. Widows are, widows' cause never reaches them. There's so many bureaucratic roadblocks in the way so that even if a widow did want to receive help in some way from society. There's so many, so many, it's like a maze trying to get to anyone that can actually help you. Procedural doors are shut. There's endless calls on hold that never end. Impossible websites that no one could possibly understand. Mystifying reams of official notices on paper that are written in a language designed to confuse you. A bureaucracy that nobody can understand. You just have to press, you just have to press two and hold for five hours and still they just hang up on you mysteriously and you don't know why. The widow's cause never reaches people who can help. There's so many it's like a serpentine maze. If you've ever gone to a military base, when you approach the entry control point, depending on the force protection level that's in effect at the time, you have to go through this little serpentine maze of cones and jersey barriers uh, in order to actually get to the gate. And that's what life is like for those vulnerable in society. There's so many roadblocks, people can't even reach anyone to get help. And where does God place the blame? He places it with the influencers in society. Probably not just the princes, but also the people who are in a position to influence the princes. The rich people, the people with money, the people who influence the decision makers to do advantageous things for them that incidentally end up crushing people who don't have money to become powerful. To skip two chapters further on to Isaiah chapter 3 verse 12. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you. They have swallowed up the course of your paths. Swallowed up. It's though, it's though their leaders are, are leading them, saying, come follow me, everything is going to be fine. And then they lead them somewhere, and then they just vanish, and there's no signs to tell where they're supposed to go, and they're just like abandoned in the middle of absolute nowhere. 
saying, well, what am I, what am I supposed to do now? Why did you lead me out here? And where did you go? You said you'd be right back. Sort of, they've led them out and they've swallowed up the course of their paths, ripped down all the signs and gone. Leading people nowhere. He goes on and he says they've, they've done it because of, they want personal gain. Isaiah chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. You yourselves have devoured the vineyard. The goods stolen from the poor are in your houses. The vineyard's this metaphor for his people. God's people are pictured as a vineyard. They're supposed to be taken care of. They're not taking care of it. They've, they've devoured it. It's like instead of taking care of the vineyard, they've just like, like driven four by fours through and crashed everything down. They've just, they've, they've just destroyed it. How dare you crush my people? Now listen to this. How dare you crush my people and grind the faces of the poor, says the Lord God of heavenly forces or heavenly hosts. Look at the imagery. God says the leaders in society at this time, they're, they're enacting policies and passing laws that, that, that crush people. Like a hydraulic press just smashes everything. They're being smashed. Not only are they being smashed, it's as, though, it's as though their foot is placed against their cheek and they're grinding their cheek into the harsh, cutting gravel, grinding them into the dirt. That's what these policies are doing. So my point is this. As you read Isaiah leading up to this beautiful Christmas passage, the point is not just God wants you to be saved. God does want people to come to faith, but God is also concerned about justice. He's concerned about justice while we wait for the Messiah to come. That's what all the passages I'm reading are about. That's Isaiah's, that's God's complaint through Isaiah. So here's a parable God gives to explain his problem in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Let me sing for my beloved one a love song for his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it. He cleared away its stones. He planted it with excellent vines. He built a tower inside it and dug out a wine vat in it. He expected it to grow good grapes, but it grew rotten grapes. God did everything right in this parable. See, Jesus wasn't the only one who told parables. God did everything right. Everything he was supposed to do, and what happened? He goes to get the crop, and the grapes taste like garbage. What are these rotten grapes? If you had to say, what are the rotten grapes that God is angry about? You and I, we'd, our default would be to say, well, they, they don't trust God. They don't love God. They're just externalists. They just go through the motions. They don't love him. We, we'd focus on the fact that they don't love God in some way. But that's not what Isaiah says. I'm sure that's behind what he says, but he doesn't say that that's the problem. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, he says what the problem is. The vineyard of the Lord of heavenly forces is the house of Israel. So just like Jesus, God is now explaining the parable. And the people of Judah are the plantings in which God delighted. God expected justice, but there was bloodshed. Righteousness, but there was a cry of distress. Now those words, he expected justice, he got bloodshed. He expected righteousness, but he got distressed. Those words sound almost identical in Hebrew, which means he expected one thing, and then when he looked, it looked like that's what it was. 
But it's only when he bit into the grape that he realized, blah, that is not what it looked like. Because the words are almost identical. It means he looks and it looks like that. He looks like he's getting what he's supposed to get from this amazing vineyard that he spent so much time on. When you look at the grape, it looks like it should, but then when you bite into it, it's disgusting inside. So what is God saying here? That he's condemning his people for this. That, that's what the rotten grapes are. So what's God saying here? He's saying that if you belong to God, God if God's people don't practice justice, then we're rotten, no matter how, how good we look on the outside. If the fruit of our faith is only personal and individual, is only about our own holiness, and produces no fruit that is a, a thirst to see righteousness and justice done in society, then God says we're rotten grapes. So listen to what he says as we skip to chapter 10. We're almost to our passage. As we skip to chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, listen to what he says as he continues the same theme. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. He says, doom to those who pronounce wicked decrees. Your, your, your translation might say something like, woe. What it means is, is that um, disaster. One translation says, you are as good as dead, those who pronounce wicked decrees. Translation, God is very upset with those who pronounce wicked decrees and keep writing harmful laws. You have the legislative, you have the judicial, and you have the executive branch all wrapped up in here, all three branches of government. The legislative branch writes harmful laws. The, the, judicial, the judicial branch uh, passes wicked decrees. And if you want to know what kind of guy Ahaz is, read Second Chronicles 28, and I won't go into it here, but he is not a good guy. Okay, just trust me, he's a loser. Second Chronicles 28, you can read it and learn all about it. But every branch of government is just rotten to the core, right? Just totally awful. Doom, God says. You are as good as dead. Woe to you. Who pronounce wicked decrees, keep writing harmful laws, and there are four things that happen because of this. To deprive the needy of their rights... The ESV says to turn aside people who need help, meaning you have people, there are laws that are being passed, you have people who are coming who need help, and you're just saying, oh, go see that person over there, and then they go there and there's nothing there. You're, 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 you're trying to funnel them away so you don't have to bother with them, because they're annoying. They make you upset. They're nothing people. They're meaningless. They're white trash people. They're whatever trash people. They're, I don't want to deal with you. Go over there and see them. Yeah, okay, have fun. Bye. You're turning them aside. You're denying them their rights. Rob the, number two, rob the poor among my people of justice. People deserve justice. They deserve help to make things right. Whatever their problem is, there's injustice. It, society needs to, the government is supposed to help in God's, God's nation. It's supposed to help fix things. And they're not doing it. They're robbing the poor among my people of justice. They're stealing justice from people. Number three, they make the widows their loot, or they're, they're, they're stealing from widows. Economic policies, legal decisions, executive orders, and, and vulnerable people in the society are being robbed, are being stolen from, to steal from orphans. And so we read stuff like that. 
and we think, you know, how could they do that? What losers, right? What's wrong with these people? Idiots. And we get the impression, we can almost get a Looney Tunes sort of impression. Like you see Yosemite Sam, and you know he's not a good guy, right? You just know, right? You can tell. Um, we get the impression from reading this that there's just this cabal of guys in Jerusalem who hate everybody, who cackle and get drunk together and pass laws designed to kill people. That's not the way the real world works. I work in a state agency. I work with a policy and legislative affairs division. They have a legislative liaison and try and convince people to vote for, their, to vote for certain, uh, certain laws and bills. That's not how things get done. There's not a cabal of people in Olympia who cackle and try and find a way to ruin everyone's lives so they just pass laws about it. That might work as a, as a Jeremiah or a lie that works well on certain social media or news networks, but that's not how the real world works. Um, so get, we should dump the cartoon version of these people are just all evil and they're hateful. Verse 2, chapter 10, verse 2, does indicate that they're doing it for a purpose, to exploit people. But it's possible that it's more complicated than that, that instead of a deliberate exploitation, they just don't care about the possibility of exploitation, and so when it happens, they don't care. Let me give you an example. Everybody likes, no matter who you talk to, I work with people who don't share any, any views about morality that I do. If, and if you work anywhere in the world you work, and you're a Christian, you work with people who don't show your values. That's the, way, that's the way life is. You can get angry about it and post on social media, or you can just realize that that's life, and Jesus kind of said that's what would happen. So I deal with, talk with people all the time, share no moral values that I have. But yet everybody genuinely believes in justice and righteousness when you ask them about it. I mean, everyone genuinely wants to try to be fair and, and, and equitable according to their understanding of what that is. The trouble is that when you move away from talking to real people and you start talking about laws and policies, especially on a national level, things become so abstract that you can't actually see what the impact is or you have to try really hard to see what the impact is. That could be what's happening in Jerusalem. Not that there's a cabal of evil people who hate everybody, but that there's just a cabal of people who don't care to find out if their policies hurt someone. And they don't care if it does happen. It's not like it's intentional, but it's the inevitable result. Let me give you an example. COVID-19. It's killed 800,000 people in this country. It's averaging up to 1,300 people a day now because of the new variant, according to the last figures from the New York Times I saw this morning. Many people don't really care. Or even if they do care, it's an abstract thing, right? How many of you are really genuinely terrified and upset? Some of you may be, but how many of you are very genuinely terrified and upset about a virus you can't see that has killed 800,000 people in this country? Or how many of you, that's an abstract thing? It's like the national debt. Who can even conceptualize it? 10 billion, 20 billion? Who cares at this point, you know? It's like 800,000? You can't even picture that many people. So you can say it's awful, 800,000 people have died. But for many people, the reaction is, okay, it's not real. You can't see it. They're just words on paper. It doesn't confront us. It might have confronted you personally through people you know who've suffered from it. But for other people, it has never confronted you personally. So you might care, but you don't care. You do care, but you don't care. It's an abstract thing. And so when we think of how could they pass laws like this, I think some of what's going on here, if you think about the way the real world works, is you have an indifference or a disinterest about how your policies are going to crush people. 
All you care about is getting you getting you and your people getting to benefit from them. The, the unintentioned result, or the result you don't care about, is that people who are less, who are vulnerable, will be crushed. And God is saying, in Isaiah 10, verses 1 and 2, as we get to our passage, if you belong to him, and if you're complicit in laws and policies that exploit the most vulnerable, then he says you're as good as dead. Doom, woe to those, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 1. Isaiah 10, 3, what will you do on the day of punishment when disaster comes from far away? To whom will you flee for help? Where will you stash your wealth? So I ask again, what is God doing in the Bible? What is Messiah's total mission? Not just part of it. What's the total mission about? Why would he, if it was just your salvation, he wants you to get saved. If it was just the Great Commission and nothing else, right? Just the Great Commission, full stop then why would he care about justice and the orphan and the widow and the rights of the most vulnerable as he criticized them through 10 chapters? Why would he care about the poor people's faces being ground and crushed into the dirt? Why would he care about the executive and the legislative and the judicial policies that are corrupt, that subverted justice? Why would God say that rotten grapes are when he got bloodshed instead of justice among his people and distress instead of righteousness. The answer is because what I said at the very beginning. God's story, the Bible, is about God choosing and rescuing a community, a special community, to be with him forever in his kingdom that's coming. And we're supposed to model that community among ourselves and to the world. We're supposed to do more than just get saved. We're supposed to live out his values. And in Isaiah chapters 1 through 10, he tells them, my values are justice and righteousness, and you guys suck. That's what he says over and over and over. So now, when we get to Isaiah 11, when we see these promises, know that they come in the context of all the injustice that he just talked about. They don't just parachute in by themselves as a Christmas story. So, we get to the second part of the sermon, Isaiah chapter 11. He says, he just finishes talking about how you're going to trust Assyria, but I'm going to destroy all of them. Why don't you come back to me? I'm going to cut them all down, this huge forest of trees that are Assyria. I'm going I'm to like burn them to the ground and cut them to pieces. There will be nothing left but stumps on the ground. And in Isaiah 11, verse 1, he says, A shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. A branch will sprout from its roots. Jesse is David's father. David is the forerunner, earthly forerunner of Jesus. The shoot from Jesse is Jesus. What does it mean that he's going to come from a shoot? It means he's going to come from nothing, like the stump on the ground. Have you ever cut a tree down and then this little branch starts growing out from the stump or from the roots? That, that's what he's talking about. Something special is going to come from nothing, from this stump that's on the ground. Verse 2, the Lord's Spirit will rest upon him. The Holy Spirit will rest upon this shoot that's descended from Jesse, from David. In unfathomable measure, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of planning and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. This means this man, he'll always know what to do, he'll always understand the issue, he'll always fix it perfectly, because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, 
And nobody knows the Father as well as the Son. This is going to be a unique and special leader as we wait for the second advent. What is Jesus going to do? Isaiah is going to tell us what he's going to do. He will delight, verse 3, he will delight in fearing the Lord. He won't judge by appearances nor decide by hearsay. What will the world be like with a leader who actually delights in fearing the Lord and doesn't delight in pandering, looking good to his base by going on his favorite news program, or about getting reelected? What would the world actually look like with someone like that? He will, and this is the key point, verse 4. I'm going to park here and then go through the rest very quickly. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. What does that mean? This only makes sense if you remember everything we just talked about. There's injustice, the poor are being crushed, widows are being taken advantage of, people who are vulnerable are being redirected so they do not get help. The most vulnerable are being crushed and destroyed. And in that context, we read, Jesus will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. That's a promise of hope. What does that have to do with you? Who are the needy and the sufferers today? Who are they? Some of us might immediately be uncomfortable with that question because it seems political. But we can't shrug and try and avoid it because the Bible says it. Who are the needy? Who are the sufferers? Because if Jesus is going to help them when he comes back, we should probably know who they are. You should know who they are. Is it you? You have to ask that question and this whole passage is useless. Jesus rescues us. He wants us to tell other people the good news so they can be part of the family too. But we have to live in this world while we wait for him to come back the second time. So how should we live? Who are the needy? Who are the suffering? Who God takes special care here to encourage. This is who I believe the needy are. The people who are hurting in a society that can't seem to make justice happen, no matter which administration is in office. People who are hurting in a society that can't seem to make, cannot seem to make justice happen, no matter which administration is in office. It doesn't matter who is in office, people continue to suffer and be neglected and to really struggle in this world. I want you to consider two categories very briefly. Jobs and healthcare. Amazon's net profit in 2020 was net profit. That's after all the other costs. Net profit was $21.3 billion. Net profit. Yet in Olympia, Washington at this very moment, their advertising pay up to $18 an hour, and they actively prevent workers from unionizing, and during the, during the stor tornado storms in the Midwest, South, um, the delivery center that was destroyed and flattened by the hurricane, one delivery driver was actually told by a dispatcher to continue delivering even as she saw a tornado hurtling down the road toward her. And there's other reports of workers not being allowed to go to the designated safe area within the building when the tornado siren sounded because they feared it would impact delivery schedules. So a company that makes $21.3 billion pays up to $18 an hour and has some sort of workplace culture where a dispatcher can literally tell someone who's watching a tornado come at her, no, just keep driving. And she said, I need to go back. And she said, if you, keep, you come back, you're fired. 
It's a news story. I have it footnoted here in my notes. What kind of employer is that? $21.3 billion? Can you live on $18 an hour? What about health care? There's massive quality of life issues and differences depending on what kind of life insurance you have, which depends on how much money you have. If you have bad insurance or no insurance, you're not going to live as long as people who do. And those two, just those two examples, jobs and health care, are intertwined together in an endless cycle. You can't live longer if you have better, you, you live longer if you have better insurance, but you can't get better insurance unless you get a better job. You can't get a better job unless you have more education. But the bachelor's degree is really useless and does nothing for you. It doesn't mean you can actually do the job anyway. But you can't get better education without getting student loans because everything's too expensive. You can't get student loans without incurring tons of deferred debt, which is deferred just long enough till six months after you graduate, then they'll start sending you bills. And then after you graduate, you can't get the better job you went to school for unless you have experience. But you can't get experience unless you get hired. But you can't get hired unless you have experience. So you slum it and tell yourself that you're taking a job, like at Amazon, that you promised yourself was only temporary till you find something. And that job gives you insurance that's so expensive or with a deductible so high it might as well be worthless, which means you really don't have insurance, which means you've actually achieved nothing, which means you become tired and stressed and anxious and worried to death and your health suffers but you can't fix your health because you can't get a better job you can't get a better job because you have too much debt you can't get a better paying job which means you worry more which means you get sicker which means because you're sicker you'll never be able to get a better job which makes you worry more which makes you sicker and so your life is this wheel that keeps flipping you around in a spin cycle your head smashing against the the round confines of the washing machine over and over and over. And so your life, yeah, has love and faith and family. But your life is also a series of crises that are often so far beyond your individual ability to conquer or avoid. Because you work a low-paying job from an often uncaring multi-billion dollar corporation. Walmart's net was $13 billion last year, whose aim is to plunder you and to give back as little as possible and you're the victim of a band-aid patchwork of social aid programs that might allow you to live but not allow you to thrive. And you might say, well, that's not me. Well, it's a lot of people. I'm talking about the vulnerable people in society who cannot seem to get justice no matter which administration is in office, who are being crushed, who are being pushed down, who are being, who are being crushed by policies and programs that might not be deliberately malicious but that result in what you see. There's two books that are really good that'll help Christians think through this. One is Generous Justice by Tim Keller. Uh, he's a very conservative Christian. He's not crazy. Generous Justice by Tim Keller. And if you want a book uh, to read about the state of health care um, through the prism of a small hospital in uh, rural Ohio, a book called The Hospital by Brian Alexander is extremely eye-opening and frightening. The Hospital by Brian Alexander and Generous Justice by Tim Keller. So let me put it this way. This is what God says in Isaiah 11.4. Because we can just brush right by this without thinking very hard. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. What Jesus coming back means is this. If you make $18 in Amazon at 25 hours a week, and that means 38% of your paycheck goes toward insurance for you and your family, which is correct, because I looked up their, their insurance options, before deductions or your deductible. 
which leaves you 1100 a month for all expenses before taxes, and you come to church and you love Jesus on Sundays, and you wonder, is this really the best that it's going to get? God in this passage says, no, it's not the best that it's going to get. Things will be fixed. There will come a day where you won't have to worry about that stuff, where you won't have to pay a million dollars for health insurance or have a deductible that doesn't work. There will come a time when all of the injustice or things that should be fixed in society are fixed. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity, with fairness for those who suffer in the land. Or if you are tired of being treated like trash by doctors because you're on state Medicaid, because you can't afford insurance, because it's ridiculously expensive, and you love Jesus and you go to church while you can, and you're praying that your car survives long enough for you to get home and to work tomorrow, and it's held together by duct tape and prayer, and you wonder, is this the way my life is supposed to be? Because I, I don't see any magic pot of gold coming my way today, tomorrow, or next week. In this passage, God says, no, it is not the way things are going to be forever. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. God promises a future for people who see no hope in this world. No hope in themselves to affect their own salvation and no hope for policies or legislation to solve anything or be anything but well-meaning band-aids. And Jesus, Jesus in Mark chapter in Matthew 5:3 famously says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God." What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means you have no hope. It doesn't mean you're poor. It doesn't mean you only have a little bit of the spirit and not a lot. It means you're, you, you have no hope. Another translation says, happy are people who are hopeless because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. If you feel there's no hope in this world, there's no hope in the next administration or the administration after that one, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to you because there is a time coming when everything is going to be fixed. So what is God going to do to flip this world right side up? As we quickly go through the rest, he says that he's going to kill people who oppress others. The last part of verse 4, he will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth. By the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. This isn't some frenzied slaughter, but it's justice. People who oppress others for their own benefit, they're the ones who are going to be slaughtered. Verse 5, righteousness will be the belt around his hips and faithfulness the belt around his waist. A contrast between the leaders we see now the leaders we've always seen. Leaders always disappoint us no matter who they are, no matter what they say. Even if they mean well, they always end up disappointing us. Ronald Reagan knew very little about biblical Christianity before he ran for president. It's well documented he had to be tutored by an evangelical aide so he can answer questions correctly um, to court the evangelical vote so he can get elected. Obama was a very religious man from a very different flavor of Christianity, yet he supported the evils of abortion, as did Reagan when he was governor of California. No matter which person you want to elect, right, left, blue, red, whatever, no one can actually measure up, but Jesus, Jesus is going to measure up. Justice, righteousness, faithfulness, they, he embodies them, they are him. He personifies everything that's good, everything that's right, and everything that every single political leader or platform fails to make good on. 
Verse 6, the wolf will lie down, will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion will feed together, and a little child will lead them. This is a complete reversal. Animals kill each other. Now they don't want to kill each other. Nature won't be dangerous anymore. A nursing child will play over the snake's hole. Toddlers will reach right over the serpent's den in verse 8. This reversal, why the reversal? God's community that he's making is about more than just my salvation, your salvation. He's making a community that's going to live in a society, in a society, in a restored creation where things are the way they were supposed to be back in the beginning. Where snakes aren't going to bite you. Where COVID's not going to infect you. Where animals are not going to try and kill each other or kill you. Tornadoes, hurricanes, COVID, murder, famine, injustice, these aren't normal things. Verse 9, they won't harm or destroy anywhere on my holy mountain. The earth will surely be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, just as the water covers the sea. This will be a world saturated with knowledge and love for the gospel, with allegiance to Jesus as king. On that day, when justice reigns, when everything's fixed, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal to the nations, verse 10. The nations will seek him out, and his dwelling will be glorious. Jesus as a light in the darkness, a beacon in the night. Have you driven on the interstate late at night, and you're very tired, and you're looking for the, the glow of the gas station so you can get more coffee so you can survive? And then you finally see it, and you're so happy. Jesus, well, that's not a good, Jesus is the gas station in the, in the darkness. Jesus is kind of like that, okay? I mean, you see it, and you're filled with joy. But Jesus is better than gas station coffee. But you get, you get what I'm saying. He's a beacon in the night. A light for everyone, a light for the nations and the Israelites. For both, for anyone who wants to come. And yet, how did Peter and the guys in Jerusalem get it so backward in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11? So I'll close this sermon with this. I'm going to read you two excerpts from something. One's from a political think tank and one's from a newspaper. I'm going to read both of them to you. And I want you to think about the futility of what these things say. And you might even stop listening because you've heard this before, and that's the point. First, the letter from the think tank. Quote, I do believe we are standing at a crossroads, and we must make a choice. The choice before us is not left or right, Republican or Democrat, this is the time we must choose principles and sound ideas over politics and party lines. The political process is not going to drive the kind of change we need in order to restore liberty in our country. Continuing to move the climate of ideas and opinion in our direction is necessary to leave future generations the free and prosperous society they deserve. Only when this is accomplished will the political system generate the outcomes we desire. Rah, rah. The newspaper, this is what the newspaper excerpt says. It's reporting on a political rally and meeting uh, in New York. And it starts off by saying that one speaker criticized the administration and about how its, um, its economic policies will, uh, will produce hunger and, quote, bread lines if the Democrats continue in power. She continued this prediction. We are not going to put in a dictator this time. 
We're going to have as president someone who will work with the Senate and Congress, and we are going to have a Senate and a Congress that will work with this president. Therefore, all women should vote the Republican ticket not only as a duty, but as a necessity to avoid great disaster. This country has had enough of dictatorship and his policies. One of these is from 2021. One of them is from 1920. Can you tell which one? Which one's from 1920? It, I'm not going to tell you, because it doesn't matter, because they sound exactly the same, 101 years apart. How can that possibly be? It's almost as though it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you vote for. Well, it does matter a little who you vote for, but in the end, the, the problems will not permanently be fixed. They won't. Either could be from today, or either could be from 1920. It doesn't matter. Nothing changes. We do what we can, and we ought to elect leaders who uphold justice across the board, no matter which party they belong to, but there is no hope for perfect justice here in this world. For that, you need to look to Advent. You need to look to Jesus when he comes back the second time. Advent is the only hope for justice. It's about more than your individual salvation. It's about hope for a just society, a righteous world, and for the right thing to be done the first time, all the time, because Jesus will be king, and that will be a glorious, glorious day. That's what Isaiah teaches us. A glorious day is coming. Everything is going to be fixed. Everything is going to be fixed. If you are sitting there today, especially if you're one of the needy and vulnerable people in society from Isaiah 11.4, and if you wonder, is this the best it's going to get if I believe and trust and belong to Jesus of Nazareth? God in Isaiah chapter 11 says, no, it is not the best there is. There is something better coming. There is something much, much better coming. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, we confess, as we examine ourselves and are honest with one another, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed, by what we have done and by what we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We sometimes don't vote for leaders who will do your justice, but instead the justice that we prefer. In your mercy, we ask you to forgive us and mold us and shape us to reflect your son's image and your son's thirst for justice and righteousness more and more so that we would delight in doing your will and rejoice in your justice here on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this to the glory of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.